your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at the same verses we looked at last week. Last week we focused on the part where Paul got saved and Paul was called to preach and made a preacher of the gospel. Uh, but today we're going to look at the part that, that gives focus to what God is doing in your life and my life. The title of this message is God is not finished with you. God is not finished with you. Sometimes we kind of get stuck and you get in a place in your life where you don't grow very much, it seems like, or you're not progressing with the Lord, it may seem like, but I want you to notice today that the focus of these verses is not about you, it's about God. God is doing things in your life sometimes when you don't even know it. You know that? God is such an orchestrator of all the details of your life that he's doing things that sometimes you're not even aware of. Let's look at verse 15. Romans 15, verse 15. Nevertheless, brothers, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit Underline the words Holy Spirit right there, verse 16. By the Holy Spirit. Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus, in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard, they shall understand. If you have your notes, if you can follow along with me, the focus of this is the work of God in the life of somebody who gets saved. And so the first point is that God offers the Gentiles to himself. If you look back in verse 16, Paul just talked about his salvation in verse 15. And in verse 16, he begins to talk about being a preacher of the gospel of God towards the end of verse 16, that the offering of the Gentiles. You see the words, offering the Gentiles. So God is now bringing these Gentiles. Remember what the Gentiles are. It's every other person that's not a Jew. You're not Jewish, you're Gentiles. It's the word ethnos. It's where we get the words nations or peoples. It's, Revelation describes it like this. Every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation. So it's all these ethnos of people. All these different nations of people that God's bringing to salvation to present to himself. God is offering them up. I'll give you a passage of scripture here on the screen. I want you to uh, read with me that, that gives you a glimpse into what God is doing. It's from Ezekiel chapter 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. So here's what he's doing. He's making the nations know that he is the, the one true God. And here's how. When I have hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So God says this, I'm going to save a people from all the nations and I'm going to bring them together and I'm going to do this so that all the nations know that I'm the one true God. How are they going to know that I'm the one true God? What he says there 
is by seeing me save all the little rascals like you. All the, all the, sor- I'll say it a different way, all the sorry rascals like you. He's going to save them from every nation. Hard people, mean people, nasty people. Just like Paul, that's why he started this out. The, the way Paul was killing Christians and God saved Paul, why? So that everybody else would know this is the true God. If he can save Paul, he can save anybody. If he can save you, your family will believe, he can save anybody in your family. Because that's who you are. Because you're rotten to the core. And he says, this is how they'll know it. I'm going to put a new heart inside of you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And he says there at the end of it, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. This is the work of God in your life. This is the the process of salvation that brings glory to God. But go back to the first part of it, the part I underlined up there. I do not do this for your sake, but for my holy name's sake. So even when God saves you, as great as it is for you to get saved and be changed and transformed, God doesn't do that for you. He does it for his own glory, for the, for the glory of his own name. If you could, if you could get this understanding, when you're, when you're living out there in, in sin and disgrace and away from God, you're hurting your name, but you're hurting God's name far more. Do you get that? That's the real reproach of, of your bad living, is you're hurting the name of God. The, the glory of your salvation is God's doing it for his name. He's doing it for his purposes, for his own glory and his own name's sake. It's not for you. It's for the glory of God. So he comes first, and here's what God's doing. He's drawing lost people, just like he did you, I hope, if you've been saved, out of your condition that you're in, and he's transforming you and saving you and making you one of his children, and everybody gets to see that. It's not to be secret. If you say, I, I believe I've been saved, but nobody knows it. There's a problem with your salvation. It's not to be secret. It's to be public. That's what baptism is. That's why you get baptism. It's a public display of what God's already done in your heart. He, you died with him in, in, in your sins, and you rose a new person saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to offer the Gentiles. Look back at verse 16. He's Offering the Gentiles, underline the word offering, this is the points right out of your verse, verse 16, the Gentiles that they might be acceptable, underline the word acceptable. So here's the second thing God is doing, he is making you acceptable to God. Notice that is the work of God, it is not your work. God is making you acceptable to himself. We saw this when we were going through Romans in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2, I want you to read this with me. It's on the screen. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And so there's no condemnation now. This is the negative sense in which God has taken away your being worthy of punishment. When you say somebody is worthy of condemnation, you're saying there's no hope for them now. They're condemned to die. It's like saying you're condemned to die without God. And he's saying to us as Christians in Romans 8, you are under no condemnation now. God finds no, nothing in you worthy of punishment. Look what he says in verse 1 of that Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to who? To those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's this illustration of you coming to the point where God accepts you to the degree that you're no longer being condemned because you are in Christ Jesus. If you can picture somebody, I heard a story this week about our buddy Justin here that he once dressed up like Spider-Man. I'm supposed to get pictures of this. We'll try to put them on the screen if we can. (laughs) Where he dressed up like Spider-Man and he was... From his wife's own mouth, he was ripped, and he was looking good in his Spider-Man costume. But he's inside there. We still know it's Justin, but all the little kids might have thought, wow, that's Spider-Man. I just saw Spider-Man walk by. That's, the, that's a picture of what God is doing. He, it's still you, but he wraps you up in Jesus. That's what he says. You're not condemned. Those who are in Jesus, he puts Jesus all over you. You've become so much a part of who Jesus is 
that there's now no longer any condemnation in you. The great Old Testament illustration of this is, is Noah's Ark. That's the Old Testament illustration. If you remember about Noah and the Ark, he, he builds this great big boat, and the wrath of God is coming on the world. He's going to flood the whole world, and that's an outpouring of God's wrath. Everybody's going to die who's not inside the ark. So what does God do? He puts Noah and his family in the ark, and he says, you come, you and all your house, into the ark, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, and the ark, if you know how it was built from studying scripture, they took the wood, it was built out of wood, not fiberglass, it was a wooden boat. They took the wood, and the Bible uses the word pitch. It was pitched inside and out. And the word pitch has to do with the substance that they would make out of tar and different things. And they would rub it in the cracks of the wood as it came together, and it made it waterproof. But the word pitch is our word atonement. It's the same word. The Old Testament word pitch is, is the word atonement, where it talks about God atoning for our sins. God paying for our sins so that we don't fall under the wrath of God. So Noah's placed inside the ark, him and his family, and the Bible says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door and shut them inside the ark. And so then as the wrath of God is poured out on the whole world and people everywhere are dying around the whole world, Noah and his family are safe inside the ark of God, protected from the wrath of God because they're exactly where God wanted them to be. Does that make sense? And so that's what he does to you and me through salvation. He wraps us in Jesus Christ so we never come under the, the wrath of God. There's no chance for you to ever come under the wrath of God. There's no condemnation for you. You're completely secure in him. When I preached this in Romans chapter 8, I gave you an illustration of this. Uh, works. A lot of people want to work their way to God. And I, and I give you a picture of the ark. Remember Noah's ark. And there was eight people in his family. Imagine if God drove eight spikes into the outside of the ark. You know, eight, eight big spikes around the outside of the ark. And he told Noah and each of his family, you guys jump up there and grab a hold of that spike and hold on for dear life when it starts raining and the waves start coming and the winds start blowing you just hold on and if you hold on through the whole flood you'll be saved but if you ever let go you're going to fall under the wrath of God aren't you glad he didn't do that with Noah and his boys because <laughs> what would they have done they would have died and some of you are trying to operate that way with Jesus in your salvation. You're trying to hold on to God by doing these little trinkets of good things, and that's all they are. This, you do this thing good, and that thing good, and you're just holding on to the spike of the ark. And look, you will never make it like that. You're not strong enough. You can't do enough. You can't be good enough. You'll, you're ultimately lost. God placed them inside there and shut the door because they could not do it for themselves. There's no condemnation. But the point here he's saying is he's making them acceptable to God. The word acceptable means to be well-pleasing, to be, to be good and pleasing to God. This is how we often define grace here at our church. Grace means to come under the favor of God. God looks upon you, sorry as you are, and he has pleasure in you. He delights in you. He loves you. And we say it this way. He puts his hand on you. He blesses you. He adores you. And that's what grace is. God moves you from a position of being his enemy to being in his son Jesus Christ. And now you find favor with God and you're acceptable to God. Just, just think about it this way in your own life right now. Just stop for a minute. Don't be a spectator. Get involved in this message right now. Stop for a minute and say, I am acceptable to a holy God. I am acceptable to a holy God. God is pleased with me. God accepts me. And I, in Christ Jesus, I am taken in by God as fully acceptable. That is, if you get the main point of here, this here, that is the work of God in your life. Not, not for you. Not because you've done something. Not because you've been a good little boy or a good little girl it is because of Jesus Christ alone he accepts you 
fully acceptable to him. Look at verse 16 again. Hope you underline the word acceptable. Now he goes next. Offering the Gentiles that they might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified is our next word. Sanct God's work of sanctifying you. Now that's a big word. And I'm going to use two different points to, de to define it for you. The first one is that God has separated you. When we, when we learn about sanctification in the Bible, it, it mostly has to do with separation. God, God chooses some things to be His. Uh, I, I often think about a, a wedding. You know, when you go to a wedding and the front row, they, if they got pews, we don't have pews, but if they have pews, they put these big velvet signs on them that say reserved. And that means those those seats at the front, they're kept for the dad and the mom and the grandparents and, and the family. Uh, when I was, you know, I didn't grow up in church. So I didn't go to church much, and I didn't know church rules and stuff. I remember when I was younger, I hadn't been saved long when I went to church, and, you know, it's full. It's The church is full, but there's these seats that are open and reserved. You're like, I'm, I'm going to sit there, you know. I didn't know any better, but I just sit there, and that's not something you do in a typical church. That gets you in big trouble sitting in <laughs> reserved seats. But that's what it means. It means to be separated apart, reserved from God, in, in, this, in this sense, separated from sin, and progressively being moved towards righteousness. Let me give you a verse that describes this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of God, as you look at Jesus, He's, he's transforming you from one level to the next, if I can say it that way. He's sanctifying you by setting you more apart for God. And so... This is what's being worked out in your life. He's moving you further away from sin and more towards being like Jesus Christ. Um, a lot of people want to experience sanctification, and you're not experiencing, experiencing it because you're not walking away from sin. If you're living in sin, you're, going to be, you're still going to be enduring and living in that sinful pattern but as you start to move away from sin, you move towards righteousness, sin gets further and further away, if that makes sense. So you're being sanctified, you're being set apart, moving towards Christ-likeness. Um, you say, am I being sanctified? Well, if you're saved, you're being sanctified. Or, or if you're saved, you're being set apart for God. And you might say, well, how do I know if I am being sanctified? This, this is where... God has done a work in your heart to the degree where he has caused you as a Christian to war with sin. I mean, if, if you're at war with sin, you're experiencing sanctification. Because before you got saved, you just did what you wanted to, right? You just lived any old way. If you're just living any old way in, in a way that you know is sinful, and you don't care, and it doesn't create any war inside of you, you're probably not saved. Do you know that? I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you're on a church membership role. I don't care if you've said for years you're a Christian. If you're committing sin and you don't war inside against it and, and want to stop that, you're probably not saved. That's reality. This is why you wrestle with sin. If you know what I'm talking about, if you know what I'm talking about, you're sitting there going, yes, I do that. I fight with sin. It's like my daily battle. I, I war. I battle. I fight with sin. What are you saying? I'm saying that means you're being sanctified. That's proof that God is working in you and sanctifying you and setting you apart for himself. He's, he's created something inside your heart. The Bible uses words like hunger and thirst. He is the one who put that in you. You didn't conjure that up on your own. If you're Thirsting for righteousness, being more like Jesus. If you're hungering for closeness, being closer to God, you didn't conjure that up on your own. That's the work of the Spirit of God inside of you, creating this hunger and creating this, this thirst for righteousness. That's why it says in the end of verse 16, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is in particular where the Holy Spirit works inside of us. 
He is constantly setting us apart, sanctifying us to, to move us towards being more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the first part of the definition of sanctification. The second part is God is making you holy. God is making you holy. And that's literally what the word means, is holy. Now let's define holy. Because we have, we have a problem defining holy, don't we? Holy is a word that can only be defined by looking at God. Holy is not an earthly word. It's a God word. In, in other words, if you, if you said the word divine, if you said the word divine, what would you think? You would think, that's God. He's divine. He's something that's not like man. Something that's not like ordinary man. That's what holiness is. It's not just perfection from sin. It's not just cleansing from sin. It's something about the character of God that's different than everybody else. You know he's not like us. He's far above us. He's not on our level. He's far above us. He's holy in, in, in perfection. He's holy in glory. He's holy. He has a... Uh, Excellence and a, a, a realm that's far above and greater than us. That's what holiness is. It is something about the character of God. And so what God is doing in sanctification is he's making you holy. Let me give you a better understanding of the word holy. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the Lord's Prayer, it says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is the word holy. It's the word sanctified. And so it means Holy is the name of God. God's name is unlike anybody else's. It is holy. And then we studied in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So what do I do as a Christian? We looked at this. You just present yourself to God, holy, acceptable to God. And, and this is the only thing God expects from you. You know, we get all caught up in, the, in these churches with do this, don't do that, live like this, don't live like that. And Jesus, Jesus comes to you and says, here's what I want from you. I want you to so come unto me and surrender all of your life to me. Let me make you acceptable to God. Let me make you holy. He's moving you progressively towards Christ-likeness. And in the process, he's making you holy. Holy like God. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That's the work of God. It's, it's not your work. It's not something you do. The next thing God is doing, we see, if we pick up in verse 18, if you'll look over there with me. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Underline the word obedient. So this is the, the fourth thing God is doing is he's making you and me Obedient. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means you're growing. That's what we would say. You're growing. You're becoming more obedient. Let's look at these verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So focus on the last part. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's two kinds of obedience. There's an obedience that leads to death, and there's an obedience that, that comes from life. Let me say it that way. One obedience leads to death. Another obedience comes from having life in God, from being saved and changed by God. And it said in this passage, it said if, if the blood of bulls and goats made, which looks at sprinkling the unclean, there's the word sanctifies, sanctifies them, purifying the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Jesus cleanse you? So if you're getting in Old, if you're Old Testament, and you're living in Old Testament days, and you're the dad, and you're killing a lamb for your family, if that blood of that lamb was Cleansing your family, that's what he's saying. How much more shall the blood of Jesus cleanse you from your sins? It's, it's way more. It says later in this passage in Hebrews, after Jesus had sacrificed for sins one time, he sat down at the Father's right hand because it was finished. 
He cleansed you forevermore. So once you have experienced this and you realize this cleansing, look at the end of it now, he cleanses your conscience. He cleanses your conscience. Here's where the Spirit begins to work inside of you. The Spirit of God is now saying to you, if you're saved, you're right with God. If you've been saved, you've experienced it. It's an amazing thing. It's why people cry sometimes when they get saved. They're not crying sometimes when they get saved because of just any old reason. It's because God has given them an awareness now that they're standing before the holy God, acceptable and cleansed from their sins and right with him. And, and their conscience, the Spirit of God has allowed their own conscience to bear witness to this, that they're right with God. And it's amazing that you're right with God. And so that cleansed conscience then, look at the end of it, causes you to serve God, the living God, not from dead works. So now you serve God out of this experience of salvation, and it's a whole different kind of service than what has ever been experienced before. It's not an interchange, but an external... It's not only an interchange, but it becomes an external righteousness. It's no longer selfish obedience, obeying for self to get something from God. It's no longer obedience from fear, obeying God so God don't get you. But now it's obeying from a place of where you know you're acceptable to God. You know that God is sanctifying you and setting you apart and making you holy. You know that your conscience has been cleansed and you're right with the Holy God. And that positively motivates you now to obey God. You can say it this way. You're experiencing the comforts of God's grace in your life and that motivates you to obey Him. Are you still bound by the Ten Commandments? Yes. But it's changed now. Let me just give you one example. I'll use the, the, the first one. You shall not murder. It's not the first one, but you shall not murder. This Old Testament law that said do not murder, when you get saved, God changes your heart, and now inside your heart, I don't think any of you are struggling with murder. If you are, we need to talk after, after church. But once you get saved, what God does in you is he compels your heart now to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the root of thou shalt not murder. That's the basis mode of it, if I could say it that way. When God works inside of you, you say, are you obeying the Ten Commandments? You say, yeah, I'm not murdering anybody. But no, are you obeying the Ten Commandments? As a saved person, you say, am I being loving to my brother? Am I loving him like I love myself? And so now, this is changing inside my heart. It's, it's what the Bible says your heart is it's no longer the law of the Old Testament. It was written on tablets of stone for Moses. And now he says he's writing it on your heart. This is what we read a moment ago in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll read it to you again. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep, keep my judgments and do them. He's now causing you to obey because he's He's changed your heart. He's done something inside of you that causes you to long to obey Him positively, not negatively, and not selfishly. I want to stop on obedience right there because I'm going to come back to obedience at the end in the application because I think obedience is the hardest part of all these that we struggle with. All right, let's move on. Number two in your notes. He says, by signs and wonders and by the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse 19. He's, he's talked about here how he's going he's to offer the Gentiles acceptable and sanctified and holy to the Lord and make them obedient. How's he going to do that? Verse 19 tells us in three things, in mighty signs and wonders and power. So underline the word signs, wonders, and powers. Three different words here. The power of the Spirit of God. And so it is the Spirit of God inside of you. When Jesus left, he said, i got to hurry, i got to go because I'm going to send you the Spirit. It was, it was so great. It was like he was rushing out of here so that he could send the Spirit back to you. You need the Spirit of God. 
I talk to people all the time about the Spirit of God, but some people, I think, struggle with this a lot. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do I know if I have that? And it, it is this, this transformation that's working. The first place the Spirit works, we studied this in Romans, he, can, he bears witness with your conscience that you're saved. That's the first place He works. It is Him that convinces you that you're saved. Him that convinces you that your sins are washed away. As far as the east is from the west, that's the Casting Crown song. As far as the east is from the west, how do you measure the east from the west? You can. You go all the way that way and all the way that way, and it keeps going and going and going. That's how far away He took your sin. The, the next phrase says, from one scarred hand to the other. He's talking about from Jesus' hand to His other hand, from the east is from the west. That's how far he washed your sins away. As far as the east is from the west. Who convinces a man or a woman that God has actually done that in their life? The Spirit of God. You don't get that belief because of my preaching. You don't get that belief because mama told you that or daddy told you that. The Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit, with your conscience, that God took your sins on the cross of Jesus and washed them away as far as the east is from the west. That's the first place the Spirit begins to work in your life. But then the Spirit is still there. This third person of God, He's still there inside of you now that you have this new heart. And He's still working on you in these three ways. It says in verse 19, signs and wonders and power. Let's try to define these. We'll start with the word, uh, the word signs. Signs is the word translated most often in Scripture, power. Or the power of God. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word for dynamite. Dynamite. Think about dynamite. I think about a cowboy movie. You know, the dynamite that the cowboys are hauling around to blow up the mine or blow up somebody else. That's the power. It's, it's earth-shaking power. That's what dynamite is. It's transforming power. That's what dynamite does. It's the same word power used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the kind of power that would not only save you, but make you a witness about God to other people. I don't know about for you. You know this about me. I didn't want to be a preacher. I, don't, I didn't desire to be a preacher. I didn't try to be a preacher. To be honest, I still don't want to be a preacher. But it is the power of God that saved me that same power compels me to tell other people about Jesus. That's what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is. Somebody that wants to cop out and say, well, that's just not who I am. That's just not me. Maybe you're not saved. Right? Because the dynamite power of God, this earth-shaking power of God that's now working inside of you, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to compel you to tell other people about him and what he's done in your life. That's the, that's the power of God. It's dynamite life. Right, then the second one is the word signs. In mighty, I'm sorry, the, the first mighty is the word power. I, 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 I misled you there. The first translated word mighty is the word power, okay? So it should be saying, reading like this, in power, signs, and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. And so the word power is, is there twice in the language, but they, for some reason, translated mighty one time. I guess that wouldn't get you that dynamite, earth-shaking view of it, but it is power. And so that's what we've looked at all right, ready. Now we're going to move to the word signs. The word signs is most often translated in Scripture as miracle. It is the power of God that can do something that only God can do. You could say it's otherworldly. You could say it's not natural. It's not of this world. It is, it is miraculous. It is something that happens on the earth that man can't get credit for. Only God can get credit for it. God did it. That was a miracle. The other way the word signs is used is often to designate a coin. If you take a coin, we don't carry much change anymore. But if you take a coin out of your pocket, it has a, it has a face on it. Usually it's a president's face. Our, our coins do. And that sign or that mark on the coin designates the value of that coin. And so you know that coin by the sign that's on it. That makes sense. And so when God uses the word sign here, he's talking about that God's going to do something in our lives 
that's going to designate us as his, and it's going to prove our salvation. It's miraculous, and it's a sign. Now, what's, what's the, the first and greatest sign that God has done to you and on you? Is he saved you? You say, I've never known a miracle. Are you saved? That's a miracle. That's a sign. That's a sign that you're God's. If God worked the work of miraculously changing your heart, that's why the Bible compares it in John. It says you were born once of a woman. Now you're born of God. You were born once of the flesh. Now you're born of the Spirit. It's, it's making this comparison. When you were born, that was a work of creation. You moms know this. I've seen so many moms. We get to the hospital after the baby's born. What are those moms doing? They're weeping. Why are they weeping? They watched creation happen through their body. The dads, he was he come in there so manly, you know. You know, the, the women, they had ownership in this baby for nine months because it's growing inside of them. As a dad, we're like, yeah, I think something's in there, something's going on, but we don't really own the creation work of God till the day the baby's handed to us. And when the when the dad gets the baby in his arms, he's like, oh my goodness. God has done something here. This is a work of creation. This is of the hand of God. And it's no different when you get saved, except it's, it's spiritually now instead of physically. This person who gets saved spiritually, God has worked a work of creation in them. They've been transformed. And that's a sign. That's miraculous. That's the miraculous power of God on your life when you get saved. And then the third word is the word wonders. You see that in verse 19. The word wonders is a unique word. It has to do with a personified display of God's work through you or, or upon you. A personified display. What do you mean by that? It means that it is God's work that is literally coming through you. You become a vessel which God works through Powerfully, or you could say supernaturally. I'll give you an example of this. We see this up there in verse 19. If you'll look at, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. Look back at verse 18. Paul says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished. And then starting right here, put parentheses, through me in word and deed. Through me in word and deed. That's an example of wonders. God is working through Paul. In word, things he's saying, deed, things he's done, and these are wonders. These are mighty displays of the work of God, and and it's glorious. Look, I've gotten so many testimonies from wives recently since I preached the message on romance. More than one of you wives, guys, if your wife isn't seeing it, maybe you need to get involved a little better, because some of these guys, man, they stepped up in manhood around here. And they're serving their wife. I've got testimonies of dishes being done, laundry being done, manly man. You know, just serving their wives. Ladies, that's a wonder. That's this verse. That's a wonder. That is, that is the miraculous power of God operating through that old man that you married, that guy you married. That, that in his old ways, he would have never done that. But under the authority of God, under the power of God, there is a wonder taking place in your home. And God is powerfully doing something in word or deed through your very own husband. It's a beautiful thing. It's, I, look, you can ask my wife. I've got two, two, two in one day, two hits in one day of wife saying, this is what my wife, my husband is doing. I want you, I cry. Look, I, I preach a lot, and when you, you know, I, I love to mow the grass. Let me try to, I love to mow the grass. When I mow the grass and I get done, I can look at it and say, wow, look what I did. I mowed the grass. Do, do, do you all get that? When I preach, I never know whether you get anything or not. You know, some of you sleep, some of you not. I don't know if God's working. In, I know I can't do anything, but I, I don't even know if. If God's worked or not in your lives, but when I get two calls in one day that husbands are doing something they didn't do before, I was like, man, thank you, Lord. You're working. You're working in our church. 
It's a beautiful thing. So that's wonders. God working through you. Now let's, let's kind of, I, I took this out of order, number three in your notes, but I wanted it to have its place here. Verse 17. I have this reason to glory in Christ Jesus. I have this reason to glory in Christ Jesus. Look back at verse 17. Therefore I have reason to glory. The word glory is the word weight. It means to distinguish with honor and praise, to, to worship, to adore, to give great glory to God. And Paul says, therefore I have this reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. And so what things? We just read about it. God is offering Gentiles, people from every nation, to himself. God is making them acceptable to himself. God is sanctifying people and making them holy. God is making people obedient to him. God's doing all this. And so who gets the glory for all that? Paul says in verse 17, I have this reason to glory in Christ Jesus. This is why I give God all the glory. Look at verse 18. Circle the word not. For I will not, there's the first one, I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not, there's the second one, accomplished through me and in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. So in verse 18, Paul uses a double negative. And, and he's, he's saying this. I will not take credit for anything Jesus has done. He says, I will not, no, I will not take credit for anything Jesus has done. What will I do? I will give all the glory to God because I know it is not by my power that somebody's presented to God. It is not my, my power that somebody's made obedient, made sanctified, made holy, that's all to the credit of Jesus and Jesus alone. So I have this reason to glory in Christ Jesus. If a church wants a reason to worship, the reason to worship is because we see God working in other people's lives and in our own life all around us. And that is glory to God and God alone. I want to end with trying to apply obedience one more time. So application is one point. Going back to obedience. Because this is where kind of the rubber hits the road. Am I, am I really God's? Am I really saved? Am I really becoming more obedient as I grow, as I'm being sanctified as a Christian? Let me tell you something about people. Have you ever known somebody who's very judgmental? Have you ever known anybody like that? They just judge you, you know, about everything. They're judging you. Maybe brothers or sisters, maybe their own family. They're judgmental towards everybody. You ever know anybody like that? Now, don't you? You got a name in mind? You got a person in mind? Here's something I want you to know about that person. The reason they're so judgmental to everybody else is because they're judging themselves. They're living in a lifestyle where they're judgmental toward themselves. Why are they so judgmental towards themselves? Because they're trying to justify themselves before a holy God. If you experience grace, then you know that you're acceptable to God. You know you've been sanctified by God. And through the Holy Spirit of God, you desire to obey God. And you don't need to judge anybody else. You know that you of all people should receive most judgment. You're most unworthy. But look, I got the grace of God. And so you remove all the tendencies towards being judgmental. Do you know that in your life, this is precisely where the devil and the Lord collide inside your mind. Let me try to explain. The devil, which his name means the accuser, he's constantly inside your mind accusing you and reminding you of your sin, current sin, your past sin, where God is in your mind and he's constantly reminding you of grace and Jesus dying in your place. The reason is the devil wants you working, obeying, to try to please God. And if that's your condition, you're just trying to be good enough to please God, trying to earn the favor of God, trying to do enough, be enough, one day God would be happy with you. If that's who you are, here's your condition. I'm going to describe it to you, to you about yourself. You never win. You never measure up. You're never enough, and you're always defeated. 
you always feel defeated. But God, on the other hand, he's inside your mind and he's convincing you of grace, not only in your mind, but in your heart through the Spirit of God. And here's what God keeps pronouncing to you and preaching to you over and over. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. You can't do it. You can't even try to do it and be successful. You can't hold on to the spike on the outside of the ark. God's going to lock you inside Jesus, and Jesus did it all. God wants you to know his grace. And from that position of being in Christ and being thankful for grace, that's where God teaches you to obey him. It's, it's, you could do the same thing, but one is out of a judgmental, earn my way to God mind, and you're missing it. And the other is out of grace, where you're resting in the Lord's arms, and you're getting it. I'm going to use the cross to try to illustrate this in, in conclusion. You remember the cross that Jesus carried on his back? It was a, a, a wooden post that's set in the ground, and then another wooden post that made a cross. It was a big beam, log. It was a log that would have been hung this way, and a, and a man would be hung upon it. When Jesus carried the cross, he didn't carry the main beam. It would have already been in the ground up there on Golgotha, on the mountain of Calvary. But the, the beam that went this way, the smaller beam, that's the one that the man would generally carry up the hill uh, to be hung on. That would be the cross part that he would carry. Now, I don't know about you, but if we think about, if we think about Jesus, I, I believe that we would all say that Jesus is the strongest man that's ever lived. Would you agree with that? I mean, these movies today about Marvel and Thor and whoever your hero is, that's nothing compared to Jesus. He was God who became man. The Bible says he could have called upon a host of angels at any time and he could accomplish whatever wiping out or doing he wanted to do. He's the author of creation. He can speak things into creation. He's the strongest man who's ever been. Amen? Is that the truth? He is. But yet we get this illustration of Jesus in the book of all four Gospels where he's carrying his cross, that just the one beam up the hill of the cross. And for some reason, if you've seen the movies about it, they especially do a good job of making Jesus seem incredibly weak like he cannot carry that cross. Have you seen it? And he, he drops it at one point, and they call upon Simon of Cyrene, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, and they say, well, you carry this cross for him, he can't seem to make it on his own. He's just, we, we're, we're drawn to sympathy. He's just been beaten. He's just been scourged and spit upon. Surely he's, he's worn down at this point, and he can't carry that beam any further up the hill. I want to suggest to you that's not the case at all. We just concluded he's the strongest man who's ever been. I think it is that his desire was not to carry that beam up the hill, it was a choice. What is he going up there to do? He was going to the cross willingly. Remember this? And he's not going up there to bear the weight of that being. He's going up there to bear the weight of your sins and my sins. Spiritually uh, seeing or, or spiritual Side, if you could put on glasses today and see the difference in earthly things and spiritual things, that being weighed nothing in comparison with the sins of the world. This strong Jesus is going up to the cross to die, and he's carrying the sins of the world on his shoulders. And Jesus goes there and he, he dies on that cross, paying the debt for your sin and my sin. Your sin is past, present, and future. All the sins that will ever be committed for you. He powerfully did that. Out of strength, he did that. And when he did it and he was finished, what did he say? He cried out from the cross. Three words. It is finished. He did exactly what he came to do. But that Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross, he was only carrying a symbol. You could say it was like the word sign that we just studied a while ago. He had this sign of the cross on him, but Simon of Cyrene could not carry even one sin. Simon must have been a pretty fit man to be able to carry that log up the hill instead of Jesus. He, he had to be a pretty fit man. I don't know a lot of men who can carry an eight-foot-long log. I think some of us could and some of us couldn't. I'm putting mine in. You see, I said us. 
I'm going to lead towards, I think I can, but I don't know if I can carry a log up that hill. I've never been to that hill. But not one of us fit men can carry a seed. Not one seed. Not even one. Not even a small one. We can't stand before a holy God with even the smallest of sin and, and receive the weight of that before God and live. Not one can we carry. And so the carrying of the cross is just a symbol that we are to carry from now on to say that I can't carry the cross. I'm carrying the symbol of the cross that says Jesus carried my cross and took all my sins and they were paid for on his cross of power. So now when I stand before a holy God, I stand here saved by Jesus, clothed in Jesus, and Jesus paid it all. And God looks upon me and receives me. And I, I'm filled with gratitude. I'm even filled with worship. And it's from there, from right there, that you obey God. It's that hard but simple. It's from right there, that place where I know God did it. Jesus did it. He paid for it. He washed me. He cleansed me. It's right there in that position of gratitude and worship that now I think, I want to obey this, this God. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be the man God wants me to be. I want to be the husband God wants me to be. I want to be the father God wants me to be. I want to be the brother God wants me to be. Why? Because I'm standing in this position, clothed in Jesus Christ before a holy God and he's pleased with me and I did nothing. Jesus did it all. From there, obedience happens more and more as we grow up, we mature as a Christian. Let's pray together. Would you close your eyes and bow your head and would you just thank God for making you acceptable, for making you sanctified, for making you holy, and for helping make you obedient. We just thank Him for that. Father, we surrender to you today, fresh and anew. We give you all of our sins, fresh and anew. Lord, forgive us of our sins. And Lord, help us to, to live in a place where we are aware of the grace of God upon our lives where the Spirit of God is helping make us aware of the grace of God on our lives. And from there, Lord, let us be obedient to you. Father, I pray for the men here today. I pray that you would grow us. I pray for the women and young people here today that you would grow them in the Lord. Help us to become more like Jesus every day. Thank you, Lord, that this is your work that you're doing among us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?